So a lot of the meaning that um, is behind the season of Advent comes, is rooted in the ancient Israel's history of exile. In 586-587 B.C., Babylon conquered Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and took many of the inhabitants of Jerusalem back to Babylon in captivity. It's called the exile. This is God disciplining his children, his people, where they have rebelled or sinned against him. And for a Jewish person in that day and age, to be taken from the land, to be taken from the temple, was in effect to be taken from God. And while in exile, it's not difficult to imagine, while I'm sure there were plenty of people who remained faithful to God, never lost their, their love for God, never lost their faith, it's not difficult to imagine there were some, many perhaps, who were angry after a while that God had done these things, that this turn of events had happened, that, or deeply mourned the loss of everything that was so dear to them, perhaps lost interest in God, or some perhaps even lost their faith in God. It occurs to me that all of those categories could apply to any of us today as well, especially at a time of grief or loss or pain. And the loss and the pain and the grief and the anger that the people of Israel likely felt while in exile can be heard in Psalm 137, verses 1 through 4. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? So the people of God languishing in captivity, struggling with doubt and anger and sadness, they do not know how to find joy in the midst of these things. And that is honest and that is fair. And if the people of Israel can be can think and feel that way about their situation, their circumstances, then we can think and feel that way about ours as well. Even when exile is over in the story, even when exile is over and people begin to return to the land, what they've hoped for, rebuild their lives, it's still very hard. It's still very difficult. In the book of Nehemiah, for example, the people have been returning and they've been building the wall around the city to protect it. When Nehemiah gathers them all together, along with the priest Ezra, for a solemn assembly... And the priest begins to read from the Jewish law to the people. And the people hear the reading of the law and the Levites interpreting the law to them. And the people weep. They weep upon hearing God's law read to them. But Nehemiah, Ezra, and the Levites instruct the people not to mourn and weep. Rather, Nehemiah says in chapter 8, verse 10, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prayer, this day is holy to our Lord. We often think of holy, oh, that means you have to be sad or whatever, but this day is holy. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And that's where we're going to find our good news for this week, this third week of Advent. Amid whatever real, a very real pain, anger, loss, or grief we may experience, the joy of the Lord is our strength. There's a lot to grieve in this world. There's a lot to grieve in our own personal lives and the lives of people we know. At this time of year, most of us know our sorrows seem a bit heavier. And we're all well aware of the challenge that is out there to be surrounded by repeated calls for joy and celebration while we are enduring a season of grief and sorrow and loss and pain. It can feel as if we are in exile. It can feel as if we are in exile. 
It can feel that as if God is distant from us, that we have nothing really to, to celebrate. And if we live long enough, I have news for you, if you are not personally right now going through a difficult time of loss in the midst of the season, be thankful. But if you live long enough, you will eventually come to a place where everyone around you is celebrating the joy of the season, but you are carrying loss and pain. What are we to do? How are we to move into this season in which we celebrate the coming of God in the flesh, into the world, in in the form of an infant? How do we light the candle of joy as we did earlier and still make room for our pain, our sorrow, and our grief? In the end, while it is good that we own and name our grief, that we grieve our pain and our loss as well, it is also true that we can experience a joy beyond our grief, beyond whatever sense of exile we might find ourselves. Even while we are in the midst of it. But joy is not happiness. Joy is not happiness. Joy is not pleasure. It's something else. It's something more profound and more deeply connected to who God is and God's goodness and presence in the world than we might initially imagine. We can get to that place where we can acknowledge and even celebrate the good news that the joy of the Lord is our strength, even as we grieve. In his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis tells of an experience that he had when he was just a child. It led him to understand something deeply important. He said that One day when he was an adult, he suddenly had this memory of a time when he was a child, a memory of a memory, he called it. Suddenly, from deep within, he remembered a time when uh, he and his brother were children. And C.S. Lewis, his older brother, I think he was Warren, he was nine, and C.S. Lewis was six, they think, when this, this took place. Warren brought into the house a toy garden he had made. Now, I've seen things that nine year olds have made. I don't imagine it was anything quite stunning, but it was for C.S. Lewis. This is a toy garden made simply on the lid of a cookie tin covered with moss and flowers and twigs. And yet, as C.S. Lewis, at age six, looked at this garden, he says a sensation of desire and longing came over him. He later referred to this toy garden as, quote, the first beauty I ever saw. And he named this sensation joy. For Lewis, joy was both something delightful in the moment when he encountered his brother's toy garden, and it was a longing for something beyond that experience. In other words, the delight Lewis felt as he looked at this tiny garden, the beauty that so enthralled him, was incomplete. It was incomplete. The joy he experienced was both something good and yet also unfulfilled. It was unfulfilled in that it pointed to something greater and deeper and more powerful beyond it, something that was yet to be a reality in this world. And so he described this joy then as a sharp, wonderful stab of longing. A sharp, wonderful stab of longing. Joy is not happiness or pleasure. In fact, Lewis said, one second of joy is worth 12 hours of pleasure. The only thing joy has in common with happiness and pleasure is that once we experience it, we will want it again. We will long for it. And too often, when I think, when we reflect on the Christmas season and all the themes that we deal with, and we think about joy, we miss this. We miss this. Joy is not our happiness. 
Joy is not happiness. Joy is deeper than that. As, as Christmas, at Christmas, we are reminded that God has come to us in the flesh. We are reminded of the incarnation, the enfleshment of God as a human being, as one of us, among us. And we are reminded that Christ's first coming and even His presence in us and with us even now is only a hint. It's only a foreshadowing of what's to come. Christmas, we were reminded that God came in the flesh in the incarnation and we are reminded that at His first coming and even in His presence in us and with us now, all of that is only a hint of all that will come to pass one day, how good it's going to be one day. In a sense, we could say that though we are now in exile, one day we will return to the land, we will return to the temple, we will return to God's presence like never before. And in that, we can experience joy even in the midst of our sorrows, knowing that that's where things are headed. In Isaiah 55 and the chapters leading up to it, God hears and moves on behalf of His people who have been in exile, who've who've been awaiting God's Messiah, the Christ, to come. And God offers them a pathway to joy, even when their situation hasn't yet changed. So Isaiah 55 comes to us uh, at the end of several chapters in which uh, four servant songs are recorded in the book of Isaiah. Depending on whom you ask, initially these four songs or poems referred either to the people of Israel as one person, like Israel my son, this is who it's referring to, They later came to be understood as referring to the promised coming Messiah and then, of course, to Jesus the Christ, whose birth we celebrate in just a week or so. When these servant songs are understood as applying to Jesus, they are very powerful, they're very beautiful. So I'm just going to run through a sampling of a few verses in these servant songs. And I want you, as you listen to them, see if they don't sound familiar in terms of how we read about or talk about who Jesus was. In Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, for example, God describes the servant and he says this, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. Or consider Isaiah 49, 6, where God says to the servant, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob, the people of Israel, and bring back those of Israel I have kept from exile. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Or in Isaiah 50, verse 6, the servant cries out, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Or Isaiah 53, 7 and 8, where it is said of the servant, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, For the transgression of my people, he was punished. Finally, Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. We know that in the New Testament and beyond, most of these words are understood as speaking prophetically about Jesus' life death, and resurrection. By the time we get to Isaiah 55, something important has taken place in the way these chapters unfold. Whatever sin stood in the way of Israel's 
uh, standing with God and her pathway back from exile. Whatever sin stood or stands in our way has been removed. A great obstacle to our faith and intimacy with God has been taken out of the way, the way that God speaks in Isaiah. And then in chapter 54, then, God speaks of gathering his people back from exile, and he promises to rebuild Jerusalem, to reestablish his people there, and to protect them. And then, in chapter 55, the floodgates of God's mercy are thrown open wide. Isaiah 55 starts out with an invitation, first to God's own people, and then as it unfolds, to all the nations of the earth. Verse 1, we read, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Skipping down to verses 5 through 7, Surely you will summon nations you know not. So this is it going out past the people of God. And nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for He has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God for he will freely pardon. It's a beautiful picture of God's promise to show mercy and to forgive us for our sins. And what is the result of all of God's work in the coming of the servant, in the rebuilding of the city, and the forgiveness of our sins? God finishes off with our passage this morning. And he says to Israel, and he says to all who are thirsty and who have come to him, you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper. Instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. These two verses celebrate where God is taking all things. For here, God speaks not only of the welcome, one of the touchstones we've talked about, not only of the welcome that he's planned for us, but also of transformation, one of our other touchstones. He intends to bring this transformation into being. As Psalm 30, verse 11 says, You have turned my mourning into dancing. You have removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. Joy is where things are headed. God will give Israel true joy. God will give us joy too. That sharp, wonderful stab of joy. We and all of creation will be transformed. C.S. Lewis's experiences of joy were very instrumental in leading him to faith in Christ. If, If he could experience true joy, he reasoned, a joy that was both satisfying in some way but also was incomplete and unsatisfying, it must point to something beyond itself. If he could experience a joy that pointed beyond itself and made him long for something more, it must point to something else, something else out there that we were made for, something beyond his earthly experience. It was as if joy was saying to him, it is not I, I am only the reminder. Look, look, what do I remind you of? And so it is with good reason that joy is a key component of this season. Rightly understood and fully experienced, joy both takes into consideration our sorrow and the incomplete nature of life on planet Earth, and it points us towards something good and beautiful and true beyond what we see and touch and experience in the here and now. It promises us the fullness of what, we, what it can only hint at now. So I'm, a, I'm very aware <clears throat> of how 
abstract all of this is. Um, it's taken me a couple of years to kind of work through it and get a feel for what C.S. Lewis was talking about. But then I've had experiences where I thought, oh, I could, that's, that's what's happening here. I, I've seen this in my own life, that sense of joy, but also the pain of longing at the same time. So I'm going to see if I can give you a couple of images <clears throat> that might get us a little closer to this joy Lewis talks about. The joy we experience on this earth, in this life, in the best of situations, for me anyway, is not unlike gazing upon the beauty of the moon. It's beautiful and it's mysterious all on its own. <clears throat> in fact, I think I've told you that there's hardly a day or a night goes by that I don't walk outside and try to figure out where's the moon tonight. I just want to see where the moon is. It's beautiful, it's mysterious all on, it, all on its own, but it hints at something else. <clears throat> it hints at the larger solar system beyond and all the multiple moons and rings that surround some of those planets. It barely foreshadows, it barely foreshadows the 200 billion plus stars in the Milky Way galaxy or the 100 billion plus planets that likely revolve around many of those stars, or the 100 billion plus galaxies in the ever-expanding known universe. And those are conservative estimates. But it's hinted at there. And with the stars behind it, there is joy, and there is the longing for the deeper joy beyond what we can experience in this life. There is the moon and a sky full of stars and a good night, but it only hints it only hints at the enormity and the beauty of the universe beyond. And it calls us to look up. It calls us to look out, to pay attention, and to truly see. <clears throat> Another uh, image for you. As a part of our Christmas celebration this week, the staff went to see the film A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood with Tom Hanks. If you're not uh, familiar with the premise, it's not technically a film about Mr. Rogers. <clears throat> it's more about a slightly fictionalized retelling of a relationship between Fred Rogers and a rather hardened, cynical, wounded journalist who has been assigned to do a profile piece on him for a magazine and cannot believe this man is actually for real. The film beautifully depicts the power of kindness, the power of always seeking to assume the best about others, to give them the benefit of the doubt. It navigates some very difficult topics like neglect and death and grief and unforgiveness, and it does so with care and beauty and creativity. And for most of the movie, <clears throat> most of the movie, I was mesmerized the whole time. At times, there was this incredible sense of joy bubbling up within me right near the surface, but it was always tinged with just a little bit of grief and sadness. Why? It was the very kind of sharp, wonderful stab of longing that C.S. Lewis described. I saw something beautiful, and I saw something transformative in the character of Mr. Rogers and the people his life affected, and I experienced a longing for more of it in an imperfect world where it is far too often not the case, that people are kind and generous and loving. The movie asked me, look, look, what do I remind you of? 
In a sense, you might say that this longing is a longing for the new heavens and the new earth. God's new creation, the Apostle Paul tells us, is already coming into being in and through us who have come to know and follow Christ. And it will one day be here in all its fullness. In these last two verses of Isaiah 55, there is this this promise of transformation. The people of God, once they have responded to God's invitation in verse 1 and verses 6 and 7, will be transformed from those who are poor and thirsty and unrighteous and unforgiven into those who have been satisfied, those who have been given wine and milk and honey and have been forgiven, those who can now be let out with joy, go forth in joy and be let out with peace. And peace, the word for peace here is shalom, which doesn't mean what we mean by peace. It means that and so much more. It means well-being. It means prosperity. It means everything's right. Not that there's no conflict. That's only part of it. That's the transformation we were headed for. But there's yet more transformation. Not only will the mountains and the hills break out in singing, not only will the trees of the field clap their hands, not only will all of creation come alive as if it's in the midst of some very expensive Disney movie, not only will all of that happen, but verse 13, instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper, instead of briars the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. What is he talking about there it almost seems like it's it goes back a little bit like it's not as exciting as the last verse you see this image that god finishes with here in isaiah this this image drops a rather robust theological anchor amid the waves of dancing and singing and celebrating a new creation it calls to mind for us the garden of eden in genesis chapter 3 there god cursed the ground with thorns and thistles because of Adam's sin. But now in Isaiah 55, 13, God promises us that the thorns and thistles of the fall will be displaced by the juniper and the myrtle. God is promising a new creation. God will reverse the curse caused by sin in the garden. The ultimate promise of Isaiah 55 goes beyond the return from exile and pardon for sin, as good as that is. It is a renewal of all things. It is the fulfillment of those things for which our earthly joy is only a signpost and a hint as the moon is to the universe and as Mr. Rogers' neighborhood is to the kingdom of God. The joy of the Lord is our strength. How are we to respond to this good news? First, a simple request. Let us choose to practice joy. Let us choose to notice things, because I guarantee you they're going on around you in the world and in your own life. Choose to notice those things that bring you any measure of joy. The things, the people, the relationships, the surprises, the everyday ordinary events that bring you the smallest measure of joy. Let us practice joy. Let us notice it. Let us relish it. Let us reflect on it. Let us give thanks to God whenever we experience it. And And let us ask ourselves what greater reality each experience of joy is pointing to. What about the kingdom of God? What about the nature of God is this experience pointing to? What what does it hint at that we will get to experience in the new heavens and the new earth? Second, if you haven't already done so, see a beautiful day in the neighborhood. I should get royalties for this. I'm kicking myself because I got an email a few weeks ago from, I don't remember who it was. it was, I don't think it was the movie company itself, but it was a PR firm they had hired. And they said, we would love to give you like a four by eight banner 
of uh, the movie, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, if you will put it up in your church lobby. Well, I'm not going to do that. <clears throat> I would now because I've seen the movie, but I didn't know at the time. I said, oh, I wonder if I can email and say, I'll take that now, please. <laughs> Go see A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood this season. And again, while you're watching, pay attention to those moments of joy in the film. Ruminate on them. Reflect on them. And again, ask what greater reality those sharp, wonderful stabs of longing are pointing us toward. What do they remind us of? And finally, we invite you this morning to take part in our Lights of Hope service. Or if you're not going to come forward and light a candle, pray for those who are. Pray for those who are. Many of us in this room became brokenhearted in the past year, whether it was because of a loss of a loved one, there's been a lot of that recently, the loss of a meaningful relationship, the loss of a job or direction in life. Still others are facing physical challenges or a diagnosis that makes us anxious about the future, and surely we all carry the weight of too many tragedies that we encounter over the airwaves or on the Internet. And so this morning, as we have for the past few years, we take a moment simply to acknowledge our grief amidst the joy of the season, our, our deep longing for God that never ends. We do this by inviting you to take part in Lights of Hope. So you're invited to come forward and light a candle in acknowledgement of any burden you happen to be carrying, any burden at all. Come forward and allow your brothers and sisters in Christ to lift you up in prayer today and in the days to come. Come forward and turn your grief into an act of worship, trusting that God will meet you where you are with mercy and grace and comfort and compassion and His presence. There's absolutely nothing magical about lighting a candle. This is intended to be an intentional act of worship and prayer. One of the ways we help people walk this road from grief and sorrow to hope and joy here at ECC is through Stephen Ministry. Those who serve as Stephen ministers are trained in the art of caregiving. And if you would like someone to walk along with you on your own journey through grief and loss, there, these cards are in the pew in front of you. You can pull one of those out and see how you can get connected and request the care that you need. I cannot express, uh, as, a, as a pastor, how important this ministry is for people. that uh, They get uh, far better and more consistent care than a pastor can give through Stephen ministers, and I'm thankful for that. Some of our Stephen ministers will be down front with the name tags on, so you know who they are, and they will be there to pray with you during Lights of Hope. I invite you now to stand and join in a responsive prayer that we may <clears throat> faithfully honor the burdens that we carry and the God to whom we bring these burdens. I'm going to offer up several brief prayers, and uh, then at the end of each of these requests, I will say, Lord, in your mercy, and you just respond corporately with, hear our prayer. Let's go together to the Lord in prayer. Father God, you sent Jesus into the world to proclaim good news to those who are poor. We lift up our own financial difficulties and burdens to you today, and we lift up those whom we know are living in financial difficulty. Lord, in your mercy. Sovereign God, you poured out your Spirit upon Jesus in order that he might bind up broken hearts for healing. We lift up our broken hearts to you and we lift up those whom we know whose hearts are devastated by life's losses. Lord, in your mercy. 
Father, you anointed Jesus as the promised liberating king that he might proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. We lift up those we know who are trapped in dark and difficult circumstances in life. Lord, in your mercy. Jesus came to give to the grieving a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. We ask that you give us hope in the midst of our darkness. May we know that the light shines in the darkness, that the darkness does not overcome it. Lord, in your mercy. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, listen to the prayers of your people, we pray. And grant to all, especially those who are bereaved and troubled this Christmas season, your promised comfort, strength, and ultimate joy. We place our hope in you today. Lord, in your mercy. Amen. Please remain standing as we sing and welcome those who feel led to come forward to light a candle using the center aisles, if you would, if you can just kind of move in that direction, come in two, lo- two rows down the center aisle, uh, light the candle, uh, and then if you wish to have one of our Stephen ministers pray for you, they will be in each of the corners over here, and you simply go over there and ask for prayer.